Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Jim Jarmusch. Have you ever thought you might quit smoking yourself? Uh, I've quit a few times. <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> I don't like being controlled by things. When I was writing my script for Dead Man, I was up in the Catskills, and it was that really heavy winter we had, and I realized how addicted I was when there was five feet of snow and I was counting my cigarettes. Uh, it was kind of a drag, really, to be controlled by something. And, I, and how do you feel about all the anti-smoking laws now? Is there, is there too much control? There seems to be a tremendous amount of coffee now in New York. But Well, I, I just think people should be aware. They should be aware of what, what things are dangerous and then should be allowed to decide for themselves. I think that's true of drugs and, and cigarettes. Cigarettes are a powerful drug. And uh, I think you should be, you know, I think it's kind of sad that tobacco companies deny that they're addictive. I mean, ask anyone who smokes, you know. <laughs> of course they're addictive. But once you know that, then it's really your choice what you do with yourself, you know. I want to talk about Dead Man um, and your relationship with Neil Young, which started with Dead Man and then continues with Year and the Horus. But um, did the music video Big Time happen after Dead Man, or when did you start working together? Um, yeah, the first thing I did with Neil was the score for Dead Man, that, mm -hmm. that he gave this beautiful score to the film. And then after that, he well, we had a funny thing. He, he made a, a soundtrack record for the film, and he used some things that weren't, weren't even in the film. Um, he added sounds. He kind of made his own collage soundtrack of sounds using music from the film. But it also had like a... 48 Chrysler engine and th you know things that had nothing to do with the film so then he asked me to make a video for the film and there was one mixed theme that's the title theme in the film that he refused to put on his record that was one of my favorite things and I kept saying Neil don't you want to stick that on as a bonus track and he said no no man I like it the way it is so then he said hey you want to do a video for my with images from the film and stuff that you shot of me while I was recording and make a video for my soundtrack record. And I said, yeah, can I use any music that I want from the film? And he said, sure. So I used the theme that isn't on his record. And then I sent it to him, and he called me up saying, oh, okay, Neil won, Jim won. <laughs> and, but he, he liked it a lot, so he, he, he's very contrary. So then uh, after that, he asked me to do the, a video for Big Time from the Broken Arrow record, which you saw. And uh, then later we did this, this new film, Year of the Horse. Now, speaking of improvisation, I've read that he improvised the score for Dead Man. That sounds unusual. Yeah, it was very strange. He um, played along directly to the film, uh, a rough cut of the film. And he had some themes and ideas that he brought in, but his score is an emotional reaction of his to the story through his electric guitar while he was watching the film. Mm -hmm. He did that three times over a two-day period, and then we later selected parts and, and mixed it together. I mean, we worked together in the final mix. But we didn't move any of the music. It all stayed where he recorded it in terms of the picture. 
And was this the first film that he scored? Yeah, I think so. Do you consider Dead Man a, a big departure? I mean, it certainly seems very different from the previous films. There's similarities of theme, you know, and, and ideas. It's clearly your work, but it's a period film. It's um, meticulous um, in creating period atmosphere. And um, there's a lot of things about it that seem very different. So could you just talk about how you came to doing Dead Man? Boy, I'm, this is going to be this a problem because I'm the least like self-analytic <laughs> person and I don't... For example, when my films are done and I've seen them with an audience in a theater that has paid to see it and doesn't know I'm there, then I never see my films again. So even seeing these shorts was kind of weird hmm. for me. Although I've seen Coffee and Cigarettes a few times because mm -hmm. I, I like actually like watching that one. But mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I mean, I don't even know how to answer that. Yeah. I always look forward. I, I think that Dead Man is different in, from my, my previous films in that it's not a comedy per se where I sort of think of the other ones except my very first film as comedies mm -hmm. but and a, and a period thing so it is different in those respects yeah. for sure the interest in Native Americans um, is something that I read somewhere that it was your actually your grandmother who got you that there was a lot of influence from her in terms of just of your getting interested in well, yeah, when I was really small, my grandmother used to give me arrowheads and used to teach me things about Native culture, and she, she was very interested in it, so I had an interest from when I was a child. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You moved to New York in the early 70s, and I want to ask you about the, the, the film... Mid-70s. Mid-70s. Yeah. Um, the film culture in New York around that time, people always tend to be nostalgic, things were always better then. It seemed, though, like a very lively film culture... Um, in terms of interest in all sorts of alternative films. Um, you were at school at, at NYU working with, with Nick Ray, and there was a very lively um, repertory scene and interest in European films. If you could talk a bit about that, just that time, like coming to New York at that time and, and you're getting into film. Let's see. Gee, I don't remember anything. About <laughs> uh, it was an ex sort of exciting time, although I, I don't like that idea of like things were better back right. then because that that's never true. That, mm -hmm. well, I guess maybe sometimes it is, but it was exciting because in the like seventy six, seventy seven, the music scene in New York was so vibrant, and Max's Kansas City and CBGB's. That there was a lot going on, and. It was made by musicians that were not necessarily virtuosos, and so there was a really strong spirit of people being allowed to express themselves or people wanting to express themselves rather than be real professional about it. I remember at one point in maybe 1979 there were um, flyers up in all over the East Village that said, everyone here is in a band. <laughs> which was practically true at the time. But that was great because it influenced filmmaking. There was a group of filmmakers that they called, there was a storefront on St. Mark's Place called the New Cinema, and they would shoot films in Super 8 and then transfer them to video and show them on a screen, a large screen. It was uh, uh, Charlie Ahern and James Nares and Betty Gordon and uh, Eric Mitchell, um, a bunch of people. And that was interesting. And, and Amos Poe had made his films Unmade Beds and The Foreigner that are kind of punk rock in spirit, I guess. And you could see a lot of foreign films in New York, too, then. There, there were repertory houses. And this was, you know, before 
Ronald Reagan uh, changed the antitrust laws and allowed studios to own theater chains. So there was a different way of film distribution, too, which made a lot of foreign films or different kinds of films more accessible than they are now, that's for sure. Working in Super 8, big time, the video that we saw. It was filmed in Super 8? Yeah. You, were you doing the camera? Yeah. Okay. Um, I had uh, also L.A. Johnson, who produced and also shot uh, Super 8 for, for Year of the Horse, also shot some of it. Mm -hmm. But we, yeah, we just shot it all in Super 8. Mm -hmm. How, uh, how hard is it to, to shoot Super 8 these days, just in terms of getting film, getting film processed? I mean, uh... Oh, there's this incredible place <laughs> in Los Angeles and Boston, a place called Super 8 Sound. Any existing Eastman Kodak material, they will cut and sprocket and load into Super 8 cassettes for you. Hmm. So on Year of the Horse, we were able to shoot like 500 ASA, high-speed, color-negative Super 8. But if you just go and try to find it in a drugstore, that's really difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of Super 8 activity. Hmm. What was it like for you, to, for you to be shooting, for you to be behind the camera? Um, it was fun. I mean, I, I shoot a lot of still photographs, and I, I've shot Super 8 and video stuff for my own amusement, you know. Mm -hmm. So, But it, it was fun. It was. I liked shooting. Mm -hmm. It's pretty messy looking. It's like the... <laughs> cinematic equivalent of kindergarten scribbling, I guess. <laughs> but it's, I like shooting Super 8 a lot. Mm -hmm. Dead Man must have been a very difficult logistical shoot, and um, every shot and every frame seems so you know, beautifully composed. Was there a, a feeling of wanting to do something the opposite or something very spontaneous to go, going into your in the horse? Probably, although it wasn't, I wasn't really conscious of that. But mm -hmm. yeah, I probably wanted to do something where the image, the framing was very shaky and not so precise, probably okay. as a reaction. But mm -hmm. I'm not really conscious of those things. Mm -hmm. Just to, to jump back again to the 70s period, I did want to ask you about Nick Ray and that relationship because his name is always associated with, associated with yours from, from that period. You worked together. And could you just talk about you know, what his influence was? When Nick was uh, asked by the director of the school, uh, Laszlo Benedek, who's the director, he directed The Wild One, and uh, he brought Nick Ray to, to teach directing there. And uh, Nick was living in Soho at the time, and he didn't really, he wasn't in good health, so he didn't like coming to the school, so he would have classes at his house. And a lot of students didn't, weren't even interested and, and it didn't really show up even. And he asked me to be his teaching assistant. So there were times when there were only a few of us just hanging around his house. And then he uh, worked with Vim Vendors on the film Lightning Over Water that they made together. And Nick asked me to uh, sort of be a gopher for Nick personally. So I got to watch that film being made and work with Nick. And... Uh, I just got to spend, really, well, I'm so lucky to have spent a lot of time with, with Nick Ray and talked with him about a lot of things, film and otherwise. You know. The time between Permanent Vacation, which, which is, the, I guess, your thesis film, or it's done, a film done at school, done while you were at NYU, and Stranger Than Paradise. Stranger Than Paradise has such a distinct style and was so different than anything else that was being done at the time. Um, I'm, I'm asking you to sort of go back in time for a minute and talk about how that came about. 
Well, partly the uh, aesthetic of the film was dictated by certain limitations because um, I was given some leftover film, unexposed film stock from uh, Vim Vendors and his partner. Vim had seen my first film, Permanent Vacation, and liked it. And then he offered me this black and white 35 millimeter film material that was left over from a film that Vim made called The State of Things. And it was enough material to make basically a half an hour film if I basically shot everything in one take and one setup per scene. So I sort of, the story was designed, the style of the film was kind of designed to facilitate just having that much film material. And so we, we made the film, the first third of the film, as a short film. And while I was editing that on an upright movieola in my tenement apartment, I wrote uh, a, a, a script for the, to make it a feature-length film. Now, you've said that, that um, if you had made Strangers in Paradise two years before, it might not have had the same reaction, that there was something about being in the right time at the right place or something. I mean, it happens with movies a lot of time that they just hit at the right time and seem to catch something um, that's going on or there's an element of, of luck and timing involved. What was it about Strangers in Paradise that made it? Like of that moment. Well, I don't know. I yeah. mean, I think I was very lucky, and I don't mm -hmm. know. And if I had not made the short, the first part first, I could have. No one would ever have given me any money to make it based on a script, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, I was able to at least show the style and, and make the, the long version of the film. But I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not good at analyzing those things, and I don't know why people did like the film at that point or why they like it at all I, mm -hmm. I still don't really know but were you surprised at the reaction I mean um, the incredible reaction it got almost immediately I was very surprised uh -huh. yeah I mean I thought that well I got to make another film and I'll never make another one but at least I made the, these and and then I was able to yeah. knock on wood still making them now each you've had a different distributor with each film and you've been able to somehow keep um Finance, finance your films in a way that lets you have complete control while they're made. Um, could you talk? And that, there's, and you uh, can own own the negatives to your films, own the rights to own yeah. your films. Could you talk about just how that sort of idea about financing projects came about and how you've maintained that because you really have kept that consistently? Well, hmm, that's sort of a long story. Uh, I got screwed basically on the first part of Stranger Than Paradise by the part, former partner of Vim Vendors who, uh, who had the negative in the lab under his own name rather than my own and um, tried to sort of, I, I don't know, I had to buy it back from him with money that I borrowed from someone and so that was a real shock to me very early on and I also had the advice of of my lawyer at the time now, a producer, Jim Stark, that I worked with um, for several films. And he was really savvy, and he saw me go through that period and helped me unravel that. And we sort of came up with this this plan of like, well, you know, I'm going to own my own negatives. And it was sort of unprecedented, but it was a way to have complete control artistically over the films. And it started way back then, and I've just uh, kept that you know, those, the same kind of structure of financing ever since. And I'm really stubborn about it, so I don't... You know, I'm very stubborn anyway. I, I want to make films my own way. I don't really... I'm not that ambitious. I don't really care about 
you know, whatever my place is in the history of cinema or whatever is not, you know, I just want to be able to make things the way I want to make them, collaborate with the people I choose. And otherwise, I'd rather do something else. So I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not a player. I'm not good at that. If I had to work in Hollywood, I'd probably be in jail for, like, kneecapping some executive. <laughs> I just don't want some guy in a suit telling me how to make a film. You know, I just, uh, I'm not that kind of person, so. And I'm really getting bored with this independent label they stamp on everything. The English patient is an independent, you know, it, do, it doesn't mean anything anymore. To me, it means having control over, artistically over your film and choosing who you collaborate with. And that, to me, at one time, I thought that's what independent meant, mm -hmm. you know, starting with Cassavetes and people like that. So I don't know what it means anymore. It's just like alternative music. It's just a, a way to sell things, I guess. So, well, you know, I don't trust those kind of labels anyway. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, what's independent, what's considered independent these days, is, is very much inside the system. Your, your films seem very interested in, in the idea of countercultures, of outsiders, um, of all different sorts. I mean, yeah. Look, anyone who says they're an independent filmmaker and yet they don't have final cut over their film. Mm -hmm should be gagged and put in a closet or something. You know? <laughs> or just tell them to shut up, you know. Like, I just, I'm just getting really uh, bored with that. Hmm. And I... <laughs> um, I think it the, what's going on in filmmaking extends to, not just to how, from how films are financed, but if you look at the, the people in independent films and um, the idea of society in well, in films in general, um, what was striking about both Dead Man and Year of the Horse is they're really about opposition to American society and outsiders, um, both on one hand, um, sympathy with Native Americans, and, and there's almost this, um, I don't want to say 60s feeling to Dead Man, but there's an idea of sort of critiquing American society that is just very, very rare in films these days. Films don't seem to be engaged with that. Well, yeah, because it, it does, it is, uh, it has some historical perspective because it's a period film, so it does, one level uh, uh, thematically of Dead Man does speak about America in, in, uh, in that, uh, you know, on that level, although it's not a didactic mm -hmm. political film or anything like that, it's just a story, but, and it's about a lot of other things too, about death and about life and the voyage that we make being living creatures so mm -hmm. but uh since i can rag on like commercial cinema the other thing that really <laughs> bothers me about studio films or hollywood films is that these people are so timid they are so frightened of everything it's like the film's got to be test marketed in a shopping mall and if those people don't have a good reaction they flip out and they've got to recut it or they it has to have a happy ending or the music's got to be more upbeat or they have to remake you know McHale's Navy or there are no new ideas anything that is interesting usually comes from somewhere in the margins of things in any form you know so to me, I would think they would be looking in the margins or trying to find things that, I don't know, have some that are daring in some way, you know, but they are so frightened that it amuses me, but it also pisses me off, so.
I, you know, I don't know. I don't understand why they're so frightened. Everything has to be so politically correct and a certain way. I, I don't. I don't know. I, it's kind of condescending to people who like film as a form. And I love all kinds of films. I like commercial films, and I, I like big budget films. I, I like the way film is used for so many different things. Uh, they should all be able to exist. Dead Man, how is it, the response to it in other countries, and you're um, pretty open about um, your feeling about how the film was distributed here. It was basically dumped. I mean, it was bought and not really well, released seriously. So I was sort of punished by the distributor who wanted me to recut the film, and, you know, I've adamantly done things my own way this long. I'm certainly not going to break a contract which they agreed to, which was they bought the film for U.S. distribution, a finished film, and then they test marketed it and wanted me to recut it or allow them to recut it. And when I said, hey, look, you know, that's not the deal. You know that about me. That's pretty obvious I'm not going to do that. At that point, they seemed to not be very interested in putting much behind the film. So I was, I think, sort of being punished. But I'm not bitter about that because I, I feel like we kind of got over just by making the damn film. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is an odd film, and it's not fashionable, and it's not geared towards, toward a certain marketing analysis. You know, it's a film we believed in. So, and it was very difficult to make, and I, I'm proud that we made it, and it does exist. And I don't look back anyway. I like mm -hmm. to keep looking forward. Mm -hmm. Two questions. First, about uh, what can you say about upcoming projects, and then uh, about your decision to shoot Dead Man in black and white, and of course, Stranger Than Paradise and Down by Law, also filmed in black and white. Yeah, uh, I don't. I'm writing a script now that uh, I, I hope to shoot in the spring of next year, but I'm very superstitious, so I never talk about things in advance. But I do plan to shoot a new one, uh, hopefully in the spring. Um, as far as black and white or color goes, I, when I'm writing a script, I start visualizing it from that very early stage, and I stick to that. I've never changed. So if, if I see a story or feel it in black and white while I'm writing, then it ends up in black and white, which sometimes is a real fight because I could have gotten enough money, actually enough money to make Dead Man properly if I had agreed to make it in color. But as, as a result, we were really a couple million dollars short, and it was really hard to make the film. But I just stick to what I see. I don't understand why people say, yeah, but black and white, we have color film now. Why shoot in black and white? <laughs> but that's like saying, yeah, we have computers now, so you can never write with a pencil again. Or, you know, photography's invented, so all painters are useless. You know, I think you should, sometimes you need a certain thing for a certain story and what you know the texture of it the visual quality you have all these things at your disposal so you should use what you feel is right sometimes you need a hammer and a chisel instead of a chainsaw you know so you got to choose what it is that suits the story you're trying to tell so that's it just stick to the first impressions i get when i'm writing what what is the writing process like Literally, how you know? How do you work? How do you organize a script? Well, I I carry ideas around for like quite a long time, usually a year or so, and then I start and I write them down. I take notes, and then I uh, use note cards on a big board that I just you know 
thumbtack up so, with scenes on them so that I can kind of visualize the story um, in that way. And then I start writing. I just write by hand in a, in a notebook and use my notes. I use a small tape recorder because I'm t often to write dialogue because to me dialogue, I, my dialogue, I'm most happy with it when I'm not thinking about it and I just start hearing the characters talk so I just kind of channel them and start talking for, you know, they, I, I just hear them in my head and let them talk in a way. I think if you think about dialogue too much it gets stilted or forced for me. I mean, everyone has their own way to do it. But do you go straight through um, scene to scene not knowing, or do you have the whole, pretty much the shape of the narrative mapped out? I have a out? basic shape mapped out, and then I start writing, but I don't always write in order. I might write a scene that's in the middle and then go back to the beginning and jump around. It depends on what I, when I start hearing them talk or I start visualizing the scene. You said that you could have gotten more money if you shot in color, Dead Man in Color. Why, why is that? Because I think a lot of really old guys who make these decisions remember when they were like the first people on the block that had a color TV. <laughs> and so they think color's more valuable, you know. So they've forced a lot of people to believe that color is worth more on TV because people don't want to see black and white because they paid for their damn color set, so why do they want to see black and white? I mean, I think that's why. I think it's arbitrary. I think black and white is very... I love to watch films on TV that are black and white. It's somehow soothing, and, you know, it depends on the story. So I don't... I really think it's, it's that. How involved are you in the editing of your films, and do you work on, com on computer or on flatbed? Well, I'm very involved in the editing because I'm really particular, but at the same time, I work with now for the last few, three or four films with Jay Rabinowitz, who I hope to work with for as long as I make films because he is really a great editor and he is someone that I can, we understand each other really well and he he sort of helps bring out the best in me somehow and, and, and helps me and makes my films a lot better than if I cut them myself. So I work with him very closely and uh, the last few films have been cut on uh, Lightworks or like the Avid system. Um, before that, I worked on flatbeds, and before that, upright movieolas. So I, I like the computer because it's faster, but it does have certain drawbacks, too. It's like you have to get used to that. Sometimes when you have to change a scene on a flatbed, and you have to re-splice it, and it takes time, you have a t sort of a, there's a time built in that allows you to think about the change you're making. And that can be valuable instead of like, okay, in four seconds, here's version 12. I know that um, Marty Scorsese had a lot of trouble with cutting uh, Casino because it was the first time he and Thelma, uh, his editor, worked on a computer. And he would save like 72 versions of each scene, you know. And he's like a maniac, so he's like, yeah, 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 let's look at uh, version number 52. Okay, uh, let me see version 42. And I think it drove her nuts, and it was hard on him, too. So it, I think you have to get used to it. Talk a little bit about your shooting process. Well, I've been really lucky to collaborate with really great people. Um, early on, Tom DeCillo and... Um, Robbie Mueller and Fred Elms are the people I've worked with. So because I 
you know, I try to visualize things while I'm writing. I have a pretty good sense of how I want, you know, whether I want the camera moving a lot or static or what kind of light uh, quality of the film, how the film material is used. And then I, I try to give as much information as I can to the director of photography and work really closely showing him drawings or paintings or photographs or scenes from other films or whatever I can. And then, because I've worked with such amazing people, then they bring something and elevate it generally up beyond what I would have done in the same way as working with Jay Rabinowitz, the editor. Um, because film is such a collaborative thing that it's really like who you get to work with that makes all the difference. You know, it's really a collaboration as far as actors and, and everyone on your crew. So... I try to work with them as closely as I can. I try to design scenes, but often defer to them when, when we... Sometimes we have arguments, which is very good, because then it either makes you sure of yourself or else they show you a way that's stronger than what you thought. But uh, I'm pretty particular, but again, I, I've gotten to collaborate with really some real masters, so their work is in the, you know, in the film. Well, there were a few things, um, most particularly uh, Native American characters in cinema. American cinema has generally really been annoying to me. It's either they are savages that have to be sort of controlled by the white man in the same way that nature does, or else they are like noble savages that are somehow grand and and I don't know there was a human quality to Native American characters in movies that seemed lacking to me I wrote the the character of nobody for Gary Farmer and I really wanted to work with someone to make a very human character that was Native American that's why I like that he's a big guy that he's not some svelte muscular young brave you know <laughs> and that he is also a real Native American it's not Victor Mature playing crazy horse you know <laughs> and he's very human and, and, and complicated you know he's, he's a little crazy he's not a perfectly centered individual so uh, that was one of the main things I wanted to get into the film was a, a real human native character <laughs> How did uh, Mark Mitchum come to be in that film, and what was it like working with him? Oh, man. It was... How did he come to get to be in the film? Well, we, we called him up. The producer, Demetra McBride, got in touch with his agent, and I then had to go to Santa Barbara to have lunch and meet him. And I had an amazing, unforgettable, like, three-hour conversation with him. Um, he drank like six double martinis and <laughs> smoked a pack of Pall Malls, you know. And he told me incredible stories about his life and films and it's just amazing. And, that, and a lot of unrepeatable things he told me. And then he agreed, he called two days later his agent saying, yeah, he, he got on well with me and would like to do the film. So then he working with him was strange because he is old school actor he's very self-effacing as a person really funny and he would not uh you had to give him his dialogue all written out two days in advance and he sticks to that dialogue and when i made a minor change in the dialogue i went to his trailer on the set 
And I talked to his assistant, and he said, I, I said, I got to talk to Mr. Mitchum. And he said, oh, I see you have some script pages. You didn't change the dialogue, did you? And I said, well, only one sentence, you know, it's just a little minor change. The guy said, oh, good luck. And he opened the door. <laughs> so I went in there, and hi, Mr. Mitchum, how are you doing today? Terrible. Uh, look, I have, I see what you have, script changes. And I said, yeah, but it's very minor. It's just changing one sentence. I'm sorry to do this to you. Oh, you're sorry to do this. You're sorry. That's what they said to Gary Gilmore, isn't it? <laughs> but then he, you know, he did the changes. He was just really funny character. What a very strange man. When we were... We were filming at a long text where he was in two positions, either leaning over a desk or standing up. And I kept changing lenses, and, and we'd pick up the dialogue again, and he'd tr forget which position he was. Was I in the uh, receiving position, or was I fully erect? <laughs> I said, well, you were fully erect, Mr. Damn right I was fully erect. But he was really a, a character, a, a really amazing man. He kept saying, acting isn't even a manly profession, goddammit. I'm just a 30-foot-tall masturbatory symbol. That's all I am. I, I just take advantage of me. It's not even a manly profession. I, um, how about Crispin Glover, since we're on the subject of interesting actors? What can, is there anything you can share? Oh, about, uh, man, that's a, the, this is a <laughs> genuine eccentric. He is, he is not a fake eccentric. When there are lightning storms where he lives in Silver Lake in Los Angeles, he rushes to get on his bicycle to ride in the lightning storms <laughs> because it's exhilarating the possibility of being struck by lightning. <laughs> And I, that's true. And this guy is very strange and an amazing character. I consider him a really interesting artist, and he does a lot of strange things, but I wouldn't want to go into all of them. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you what the function of humor is in your films, and I, I also have a question on how tough is it to make a film? Um, you got to ask the wizard behind the screen. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I, I, Dennis Hopper, I saw him say uh, on TV, he said, you know, it's just as hard to make a bad film as it is to make a good one. And it is really hard. It is hard to make a film. I heard uh, the painter David Sally on the radio once after he, he made a film a few years yeah. ago. And uh, he was saying, you know, ma being a painter is one thing, but making a film really kicks your ass. And, and it's true. It is really hard. It is hard to make a film, good or bad. It just takes a lot of... You have to work really hard, and it, it really will take a lot out of you, especially directing, because you have to make so many decisions constantly that it can really wear you down. I always... I, I stay together. I, I can shoot for... 18 hours a day and I shoot six days a week and I stay together physically but every film I've made after we're done I fall apart I get the flu I just get I don't know I, I keep it together to a certain point and then I'm exhausted so it is hard just physically and mentally to do it um, I guess if you had a lot of money you could shoot five day weeks or you could do things to make it easier I've never had that luxury
But as far as, ma you know, I think as many people as there are that want to make a film or try to make a film, there are that many ways of making films. So it's very hard to teach someone how to make a film. I know, I like that Mark Twain said, uh, don't let school get in the way of your education. And I, I think it's really hard because you have to find your own way of doing whatever it is you do. And there, people that say they can teach you the way to make a film, are they're liars. You know, you can't really teach someone. You have to, you can learn a lot by being on a set, by watching movies, by reading interviews with people who make movies. But then you have to go and find the way that you want to make a movie. So I think I'll probably the people in this room alone, of all of us here, we could make a lot better movies than they make in Hollywood. But how do we get them to give us the money? <laughs> David? <laughs> how about taking time in between films? Maybe filmmakers who feel like they have to do a film every year and just always be working. And, you know, you've said it's important to just stop. And Yeah, well, my, my friend Aki Karasmaki, the Finnish director, calls me world's slowest film director. <laughs> Because it takes me two, three, three years to make a film, from writing it and producing it and shooting it and cutting it and promoting it. It takes a long time, and then after that I need a little break to collect some ideas for another one. So, But I'm not the most ambitious or driven person. I'm sometimes downright lazy. <laughs> but I like to live and see my friends and read books and travel and listen to music and watch things, you know, I, I like to observe things. I need time between things. It's been said that death is easy and comedy is hard. To get the exact right pacing and timing that you're able to pull off, I mean, is there anything you could say about I don't know. doing it's, that as a director? It's just like what having a sense of humor. I think life is very funny, and my films are often about small details in life rather than big dramatic things. That's why they're not really plot-driven in fact, some critics say they have no plots at all, so, um, which I don't agree with, but, but the plots are not of primary importance to me. And I, I, just, I think funny things are found in small details of life. I saw two Italian guys telling an Asian guy in the street a couple weeks ago, he was saying, this was down on the Lower East Side, he was saying, where is East 74th Street? And they said... It's uptown on the east side, not quite as far as East 84th Street. You know, I thought it was great, like just kind of ridiculous. But I think there's funny things happening. You know, people do funny things, and we shouldn't take life t too seriously or miss a lot. And what filmmakers influence me, that's a really... Do you have about four hours? I could give you a list. I mean, I like all kinds of films, and so... That's a really rough question. I, I, you know, I like mostly. Well, I can't even say that. I was going to say I like things that are sort of on the a little bit on the edge or margin of things aesthetically, or you know, like westerns. I'm not a John Ford fan particularly, but I like the more outside kind of westerns. Like, well, I, I like Monty Hellman's westerns, or I like uh, um, Blood on the Moon. Uh, I, I don't. It, that's like such a horrible question, because, and for me to answer, not for you to ask. But 
I mean, I like, you know, I like uh, Carl Dreyer and Bresson, and I like uh, Seijin Suzuki and Ozu, and I like, you know, so many different kinds of films. I like to watch kung fu films, and I like, you know, Mothra, and, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I like all kinds of movies, so that's really hard. But what, what inspires you is any, whatever that moves you. That speaks to you somehow. Like Duke Ellington, when he was asked what's good music, he said, if it sounds good, it's good. So it's, which is really a very pure, honest answer. Because if anything speaks to you, then it's good to you. And it doesn't matter what other people think. It's, you know, wherever you get your inspiration. With a lot of musicians, what's the specific attraction? Is there a musician or two that you'd like to work with? When I first started making films, I, I was working as a musician, and I spent a lot. I hung out in the sort of music scene, so I had many more friends that were musicians than film people. And now that I've worked in film for quite a while, I have a lot of friends that work in film as well. But I still tend to have a lot of musician friends, so that's sort of just how they sort of filter into my work. Um, as far as particular musicians, I'd like to work with. I can't off, you know, I don't really think ahead very much, so I can't really say. I'm sure there are some, and there are people I like, would like to work with again, like Iggy, for example, who I think is capable of being a really great actor. Um, but I, I don't have any specific plans, so I can't really answer that very well, like all the other questions you've asked today. <laughs> I wanted to ask you how you felt about um, your inspired to become, uh, I mean, an integral part of inspiring you to become a filmmaker. And I wanted to ask you about your feelings on discipline of cinema studies and kind of as a prereq as becoming a filmmaker, or whether you feel it's more studying the craft and then just getting out and making, doing work. And, uh, you know, just the role of the study of the cinema. I don't know really how to answer because I think that everyone is different. But obviously, if you like film as a form, then it would seem logical that you would like movies. And if you like movies, then you should watch as, as many as you like to watch. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.